Alrighty, but now we'll get into our second topic for today, which is Ukraine in doubt. Finally, <laughs> finally. Uh, and what do I mean by that? Well, for the last year, or a year and a half, we've been inundated with Ukraine. Ukraine needs this, and Ukraine needs that, and Ukraine is fighting for freedom and democracy, and we stand with Ukraine for as long as it takes. Remember that? Remember that one? Is as long as it takes. I wonder where that one went. Uh, but never mind the fact that Ukraine has banned both freedom and and democracy. <laughs> well, they they banned opposition parties, banned opposition media, and they banned religious freedom they've been cracking down on orthodox church orthodox christians and then they banned democracy saying that we're not going to have elections until after the war well okay so there goes freedom and democracy but never mind that never mind that what do i mean by ukraine coming in doubt they're in doubt what do i mean by that i mean that for the first time in a while we are having open conflict between U.S. interests and Ukrainian interests. Because up until now, uh, the U.S. Uh, quote-unquote interest has been whatever the hell Ukrainians wanted. Like, they, they, we've given these guys everything, and we've just lionized I mean, we've treated Zelensky in particular like the second coming of Jesus. I mean, Winston Churchill, <laughs> who may be a hero of Britain, but not the United States. I mean, that guy dragged us... He went out of his way to drag us into the Second World War, and FDR wasn't much better in that regard. So that's not exactly a, a hero of the United States, someone who drags you into their war. So, But they, he is a hero of Britain. I'll give him that. He is a hero of Britain. But, yeah, they, they brought this guy in to speak at a joint session of Congress. They lionized this guy. They gave him wall-to-wall -wall coverage. He's man of the year. And they've lionized him. They've lionized Ukraine and straight up slandered anyone who didn't go along with that narrative. Uh, if you didn't go along with it, you were Putin puppets, Putin sympathizers, appeasers of an authoritarian regime, Russian bots, the, the whole shebang. But very recently, very, very recently, we've started to see a break from that Ukraine absolutist narrative, along with points of contention popping up in this relationship. And not just between us uh, and Ukraine, the U.S. and Ukraine, but between Ukraine and the EU. Just last week, Ukraine threatened the EU with a massive wave of refugees if the EU doesn't maintain its current level of support for Ukraine. So if you don't, if you don't support us, right? If you don't support us in our war that, well, quite frankly, the EU of all places should be involved in. But if you don't support us in our war, then I guess all these refugees will just, they'll have nowhere to go. And I, 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 just, I just won't be able to stop them from going into Europe. I mean, just, just, just refugees, they'll go where they want. So give me money. So, and give me weapons. That 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 money you have in your pocket, give it to me. Uh, that chain your mom gave. Oh no 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 no, that's that's mine too. That watch, I'll take that too. I, I need that. I need that for the war effort. Don't look at the mansions I bought in Switzerland and Miami. Okay, I'm fighting a war for my survival. 
and you have to pay for it. Okay. And you need to be, you need to be more accepting of that. I think, I think that we need to get our priorities in order. I think you need to get your stuff together and give it to me, you know, cause I'm fighting your fight. Okay. I'm fighting Russia and I need everything that I can get. That's basically what they're saying. <laughs> and you know what? It's a, it's a problem of our own making. Cause we didn't need to be involved in this. <clears throat> the EU. Uh, I, I can say that America doesn't need to be involved. I don't necessarily know if the EU didn't need to be involved. I can say that had we not been involved in how we left it alone, there wouldn't have been a war in Ukraine to begin with. So I suppose in that sense, they didn't necessarily need to be involved in this either. But here we are. We've given all this aid to Ukraine. And now Ukraine is blackmailing the EU and giving them more, which quite frankly, I don't, I don't not endorse it. I mean, they, if anyone's going to give more, it ain't going to be me. So it may as well be the Europeans. I mean, again, we covered that, that article last week from the council of foreign relations and they compared the aid given to Ukraine country by country, the, and they downplayed the U.S. aid to $75 billion. And that's what really gets me. That's what really gets me. They, even when they downplayed the number to a third of, what it, of its actual total, they, the Europeans, all of NATO combined, still couldn't match what we give them. It's crazy. It's crazy. Like, these guys are worthless. Why do I want to be in an alliance with these people? And why am I the bad guy for saying that it's a bad idea to be in a military alliance with people who have no military and no desire to have a military? Like, is that not common sense? Come on now. I don't care if you're the West and I'm the West and we're the West. You're worthless. <laughs> you, can't, you can't build tanks. You don't produce artillery shells. All of Europe combined is producing, what, four to 5,000 artillery shells a month? We produce 14,000 a month. The Russians are consuming uh, about 20,000 a day. 20,000 a day. Now, I think I think the Russians are up to either 30 or 40,000 a month. But my goodness, this if this is our help, then I don't want it. That's just an insult. This entire continent which has a population more than double that of the United States, not even counting the Russians, the biggest and most populous country in Europe, who they, for whatever reason, pretend aren't Europeans. The Europeans really, really like pretending that Russia isn't a part of the West and isn't a part of Europe. But even if you don't count Russia, Europe has more than double our population, like two and a half times. They have an economy roughly equal in size to ours whether that's in nominal or in purchasing power parity, is equal to or greater than, and they're worthless? You, you can put up less than a third of what we've given? Like, this is insane. I did the segment last week. Check that out. Uh, the this separate segment where I talk about that topic specifically should be up by now. I, I do that every uh, Wednesday. I have, those, I have those little segments released every Wednesday, so... If you just want to listen to a single topic from the episode that happens to interest you, they drop on Wednesday at around uh, one o'clock. So there you go. So you can listen to that one specifically. But my goodness, these are our allies. 
So in a way, I'm not even really upset that the Ukrainians are demanding more from them. I'm not. If anyone's going to give more, it should be the Europeans. This is their security environment, their neighborhood, their backyard. This is a conflict that concerns them, not us. We are thousands of miles away from the nearest point of Ukraine, 4,000 specifically. 4,000 miles from the United States to the nearest point in Ukraine. And then you have to go almost another uh, thousand miles <coughs> to get to the front line. Yeah, if anyone's going to give more, it should be them. And I knew the jig was up back when, what was it, March or April, when the Ukrainians came out saying, hey, we need more shells. And then they asked the EU specifically to give them like 250,000 shells a month. And then the EU said, hey, we promise that uh, sometime within the next 12 months, we're going to get you a million shells, okay? Hey, you don't even worry about it. We're going to get you a million shells. But the Ukrainians were asking for 250,000 a month. So when you, when you do the math, the Ukrainians were asking, because 250,000 times four is a million shells, and there are 12 months in a year. So the, the Ukrainians were asking for three million shells a year. The Europeans said, we'll give you 1 million shells for the year. And it, they didn't say they were going to produce the shells. They didn't say they were going to give them from their own stockpile. They said they were going to work to acquire the shells, meaning that they were going to acquire buy them from other countries. And that's what we ended up doing here in the United States. We got a half a million from South Korea. I knew the jig was up right then and there. The Europeans don't have the production. That, that, that's why they're that's why they're turning to other countries to supply these shells. And the United States has a little bit better production, but we're all out. That's why we turn to South Korea. Like it's really bad. Really, really bad. But yeah, I I don't blame the Ukrainians for asking for more, especially if they're gonna ask for more from the right people, the Europeans. But the Ukrainians, ever since that uh, that peace summit, well, uh, right. Well, I was I'm supposed to be talking about how there's a a split here, a split here, and I, I went off on a tangent about how the, <laughs> our allies are uh, in a bad way, and how they the Ukrainians are asking they're asking from the right people, they're just asking the wrong thing of the right people, because uh, they ain't got it. The Europeans do not have it, and that's probably one of the list of reasons why we're seeing what we're seeing now because we know that ever since the that mecca summit back in arabia about a month ago ukraine has unequivocally rejected any idea of peace talks with russia and yet we have blinken saying that if russia reaches out for peace then ukraine will accept now that is a contradiction the ukrainians went out of their way to specify and it's even circulating that they made laws saying that they couldn't negotiate with Russia. They've gone out of their way to say that they are no, that they're no longer open for peace talks. After putting on the charade of being open for peace talks for the entire war, the charade is gone. And I say the charade because they could have at any moment making peace with the Russians if they if they chose to do so, but they chose to take the money and the weapons from the West, and now they're in this position. They didn't have to walk away from those draft treaties that they had initialed back in March of last year. They didn't have to do that. If they were really on board with peace, they they would have taken the deal that they had already initialed. 
If they were on board with peace, they would have taken the Minsk one or Minsk two. But let's just say that it, it took the Russian invasion. It, it took the Russians to, to, you know, shake them up a little bit for them to come to their senses and come to Jesus. If they were on board with peace, they could have had it back in March when the Russians came in suing for peace and they withdrew their troops from the north around Kiev as a part of a, you know, a, a, a goodwill measure for that peace deal that they were about to reach. This war could have been over and the Ukrainians could have chosen to go back to that at any moment in time. And they would have only lost Crimea and the Donbass, territories that they didn't have jurisdiction over anyway at that point in time. Now look at them. The, the, the charade, so that's why I say the charade is gone. Because they they pretended to be making peace for eight years with Minsk II while they were just arming and equipping for a war with Russia. And they, they were pretending to be in favor of peace this entire war since the Russian intervention back in 2022. They've been putting up the charade that they were open for peace talks when they were actually rejecting peace every opportunity they got. And it's not like we didn't play a role in getting them to sabotage that. I mean, we came in and specifically told them, hey, don't do that back in March. And then that's when the war continued. So now the charade is gone. Ever since the, the summit in Arabia, the charade has gone off. The mask has been taken off quite forcefully. And they've said, we're just not going to negotiate anymore. We're, well, we're just not going to negotiate, I say, anymore. We're just not going to negotiate. No more negotiations. We're not open for peace talks. We're just going to fight the war. So then Blinken coming out and saying that if Russia reaches out for peace, Ukraine is going to accept. Well, that's that doesn't go together. So why is he saying that after, after being their bitch for <laughs> a year and a half? Why is he saying this now? I don't, I don't believe for a second he's grown a spine, so how did we get here? I think that it's a sign that there is now a split, or at the very least, the script writers, as the, uh, Alex of the Duran would say, the script writers have determined that we're going to be doing a change of course, and it's time to start laying the groundwork for the new narrative, the uh, whatever that narrative takes shape in, whether Ukraine doesn't want to make peace and we've given, we've done all that we can for Ukraine. It's time to move on to the real enemy, China. That Something along those lines is what I feel is going to happen here. Uh, how they're going to thread the needle of not giving an inch to Putin and rewarding authoritarianism and being the, the, the mature and right thing to do after giving it our all. How they thread that needle, I don't know. I, I do not know. I won't even pretend to know. I can just sort of see that writing on the wall. But Blinken saying that if Russia reaches out for peace, Ukraine's going to accept. That's a massive divergence from we're going to support Ukraine from, for as long as it takes. We stand with Ukraine for as long as it takes. That's a massive divergence. Because that's, first of all, that's not standing with Ukraine. And that's clearly putting a time frame up. If Russia reaches out, well, then Ukraine will accept. Well, okay, that's not as long as it takes. <laughs> Or, or maybe you can interpret that as it is as long as it takes as long as it takes for Russia to realize that they can't win and then they have to super peace. You could interpret it that way. But either way it goes, that's a pretty big break from the policy we've been pursuing for the last year and a half of Ukraine absolutism. Ukraine will accept. And I'll just take a moment to point out how cowardly and immature it is to say it that way. 
uh, where, it, oh, if Russia reaches out, then Ukraine will accept. I'm sure that they'll accept peace deals. Instead of just reaching out yourself and saying, hey, we're open to peace. We, the United States, are open to peace deals between Ukraine and Russia. And we're willing to offer up an end to Ukrainian aid if they're un- if Ukraine is unwilling to negotiate and get them both to the table. No preconditions. You know, the, the kind of leverage that we have but refuse to use, the kind of leverage that Trump openly threatens to use, and that I think he would use if the war was still going on at the time of him coming into power, I don't think the war is going to last long enough for that. I think he could end the war in maybe not a day, but, you know, he could have the peace talks going in 24 hours. I'll, I'll put it that way. So you could have that. This, this whole, we're going to, we're, we're just, if Russia reaches out, then Ukraine will make peace. That's so cowardly. So, <laughs> like I said, this guy doesn't have a spine. But it's a, it's a baby step in the right direction. All right. I'll give it that. I'll give it that. It's a baby step in the right direction. Unfortunately, it came out the mouth of the primary diplomat of the United States in a conflict where we have massive leverage by way of the fact that we've given $300 billion to Ukraine and that they don't, their war effort ceases to exist without our aid. Yeah. It's a shame the way it happened, but the fact that it did happen is... Uh, it's a baby step in the right direction, and that's as much as Blinken is going to get out of me. <laughs> but as much as I can and probably will shit on Blinken for that, it I, I have to recognize that it's in the right direction. But it also points to that divergence that I pointed out with Ukraine. Because for the first time, we see the U.S. openly stating aims that run contrary to those of Ukraine. Oh, if Russia reaches out, then Ukraine's going to accept. But the Ukrainians are saying that they're not going to accept peace unless they get everything that they want. So which one is it? Which one is it? Because you can't have both. Like, either you are or you aren't in favor of peace talks. So how do you how do you get to this point? It's it's an open contradiction. An open contradiction. And usually, at this point, someone who made a statement that ran contrary to what the Ukrainians wanted, they would have retracted their statements. They, the second Ukraine got upset, and I think of that one assistant. Uh, who was it? He was either in the the Security Council, the State Department, uh, the guy who first. You know, uh, the fir- who first proposed the idea that Ukraine give up land in exchange for NATO membership in a negotiated settlement with Russia. And you, rem- you remember how he immediately apologized like 24 hours later? That guy is sort of the example of how this usually goes. When we, when we step out of line the, and Ukrainians get upset and then they fall back into line as if we were not the ones who made Ukraine's existence possible instead of the other way around. You, we have all the leverage here. So it's just, it's just so strange 
think about how we are, the behavior of the U.S. government throughout this war, as though the Ukrainians were the superior in this relationship. But I, I digress. This is a major point of divergence from the stated aims of Ukraine and the stated positions of Ukraine. By now, someone would have retracted these statements, but instead we have Blinken not going back on them. And that is a significant, if in a minor way, uh, significant, but it's minor. This is a war of contradictions, I tell you, especially when you're dealing with these people. But it's subtle. I'll say that. It's subtle, but it's meaningful. A divergence from what we usually get. But of course, stuff like this, even the baby steps in the right direction, never come by themselves. As this divergence has been happening, the hardliners on Ukraine have also been sort of deliberately undermining the idea of even doing that. So Even that much is too much for some people. You have people like uh, Olaf Scholz, the chancellor of Germany, saying that Russia has to remove all their troops from Ukraine first. Ukraine has to get all of its territory back first, and then the, we can have negotiations. But I, I asked this before. When that idea was first floated a few weeks ago, if they give back all the territory, what exactly are you going to be negotiating? You lost the war. So what exactly are you... Are you going to be negotiating? What, they're just going to win the war, then give you back the territory, and then you're going to negotiate on equal terms? No, you lost. The negotiations are going to be from a point of weakness, abject weakness. You're not going to get all the territory back, and then you're going to negotiate for it? What, do you... That'd be the Russians giving up their negotiating position. If they did that. So why would they do that? What, because it makes Ukraine feel bad? No. They, they did that before, and then they stabbed them in the back. Remember? They pulled their troops out of the north. And Ukraine stabbed them in the back by going back on their word going and turning their backs to that peace proposal that they had and that they had initialed. So why would, they, why would the Russians do this a second time when they know that the Ukrainians are duplicitous? <clears throat> They're not going to do that. They'd be silly to do that. So why would, why do we, uh, and I say we, why do these people <laughs> attach themselves to the idea that Ukraine's going to get all of its territory back before negotiations, especially when they know that Ukraine can't win militarily against Russia? How are you going to get the territory back? What you're going to, you're going to, you who have lost the war are going to make demands of the person who just beat the brakes off of you to give you what they stole. <laughs> it's like it's like you get jumped <laughs> in the hallway and your bully steals your shoes, your chain, your, your wallet. And then you, while you're still on the ground, make demands of him. That doesn't make any sense. That makes no sense. That there's no logic in that. There's no common sense. And yet this is what are the, these quote-unquote statesmen and diplomats are engaging in. The, this absolutely childish view of international politics. 
And the people who get the shortest end of the stick are the Ukrainians. It's it's a spectacle. It is a spectacle. Uh, And it really does just point to the tragedy of Ukraine. But you can see it to our by going back towards our overarching point of the divergence uh between our policy towards ukraine uh, you have the divergence between people like blinken in a subtle way saying that we're open to negotiations and then people like olaf schultz saying you can't have negotiations until you give all the territory back well that's now the narratives aren't even aligning with each other the narratives aren't aligning not just between the U.S. and Ukraine, but between the Europeans and the U.S. There is a divergence, a multifaceted divergence going on. And it's not like it's purely the U.S. and purely the EU. No. It's more of factions within the U.S. and factions within the European the European countries who are either more pro-Ukraine, pro-Russia war, or pro-Taiwan, pro-China war. That Those are the factions at play here. And the pro-China war factions are steadily gaining ground in the United States, whereas the pro-Russia war factions are still strong in Europe. And that's what this really is uh, sort of a demonstration of. Not that we're pro-peace at this moment in time, but that we're pro the other war. Whereas the Europeans, well, they don't want to be left to fight the Russians by themselves. So they're pro this war. And they want America to be in on this war, too. They want America to be in on all of their wars, which is another reason why we should leave instead of being used as cannon fodder for their wars. But it's strange. It's strange to see the divergence, but it is nice to see that the dog is starting to wag the tail and not the other way around. And the U.S. is the dog and Ukraine is the tail. The Europeans are the tail as well. We were a two-tailed dog, or uh, however many tails as we have allies. But yeah, so you have that. You and uh, I'm trying to find my name. There we go. You have that. You have the hardliners who have also started to shift the goalposts, and the hardliners being the the Ukraine absolutists who wants to be with Ukraine to the bitter end. You know. That's what I'm talking about when I say the absolutists. These hardliners have also started to shift the goalposts again with regards to Ukraine's offensive. Because uh, after hyping up the counteroffensive and saying that they were they were going to cut through Russia's defenses and take back Crimea and split the Russian force in two and threaten them their logistics and force them to retreat, after telling us all of that and telling us that the offensive will will take some time to achieve its goals when they have to downgrade it a little bit from lightning war to, oh, it's gonna, it's gonna take some time. You have to give it, you have to give them time. Now they're telling us that we need to prepare for a long war in Ukraine. Now I could have sworn we were su- supposed to be avoiding a long war in Ukraine. That, that's that's literally the title of that that what what that Rand Corporation article that came out around around this time last year, if I'm not mistaken. Literally the title: "Avoiding a Long War in Ukraine." And yet, <coughs> here we are. But 
you know, you know me. After observing this conflict uh, quite extensively, especially after the the Russian intervention began in February 2022, and even a little bit before that, when it was still just the Donbass war, I couldn't help but ask the question. You you know me and my my dastardly thinking, all those all those nasty little ideas I get in my head, and those 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 mean little questions that just won't leave me alone and won't let me appreciate the genius of my leaders. You know, I just, I just had to ask the question, you know, just, you know me, insolent little me, I just, I just had to ask the question, how exactly do they expect to fight a long war in Ukraine? Because this isn't some low-intensity conflict in the Middle East or Vietnam, no, 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 no. This is, th- this isn't some counterinsurgency operation either. This is a high-intensity, modern, industrial war of attrition. To even stay in the fight, you need all the tools of modern war: artillery, tanks, armored vehicles. You need men, preferably a lot of men, and then you need the fuel and the ammunition to make all those things work. Giving a rifle to some Ukrainian kid is not going to do much in the face of a Russian armored column. It's not going. It's not enough to defeat Russian air power to give the to give those kids a, a a stinger. And it's certainly not enough to break through dug-in Russian defenses. And the Ukrainians are learning this the hard way as they're sending in their small infantry uh, formations small unit infantry formations at these dug-in Russian defenses, and they have to be small so they can get through the minefields, but because they're small and they have no armor and no air cover, they get there and then they get blown the fuck out the water, figuratively speaking, because they're on land. There's no, there's no cover in terms of firepower and suppressing the enemy, the enemy being Russia for the Ukrainians. There's no suppression of enemy artillery or machine guns or air power so as they're trying to clear these minefields and as they're trying to traverse the minefields mind you they're being shot at by machine guns they're getting blown up by missiles and artillery it's they're trying now to do what is inevitably going to be the the strategy of a of any insurgency, which is to just give them a rifle, give them an anti-tank gun, and lead them to their own devices to fight this. That's uh, the whole partisan war thing, which I think, which I think that after this whole long war in Ukraine narrative falls apart, and it becomes clear that the Ukrainians can't fight the long war, that they're going to go back to the whole the, the partisan war idea that was being uh, paraded excuse me, if you remember before the war began, back in like December and January, there was talk of, oh, Russia might win the conventional war, but then they're going to have to deal with the partisan war, where Ukrainian rebels in the cities and the the, the hills and the mountains are going to make it increasingly uh, expensive, too expensive for Russia to continue occupying Ukraine, and then just like the U.S. and Afghanistan, Russia's going to have to leave. Yeah. I think that narr- that idea, that narrative is going to come right back. 
perhaps around this time next year. We'll we'll, we'll see. We'll, we will see. Uh, but yeah, that one's look out for that one. I swear, if I'm right on this, I think I think I've cracked the code. I think I've gotten uh, a good understanding of the script writers and how they think. They're gonna come back to that idea because they're desperate. The idea that they're even talking about committing to a long war in Ukraine when the war was supposed to be over by now with the sanctions, the war was supposed to be over by now with the counteroffensive, the war was supposed to be over by now when we supplied them with HIMARS and modern tanks and all this modern superior Western equipment. The war was supposed to be over by now. Russia lost, remember? <laughs> Russia lost back in March. Millie, Millie told us that. Re remember, Russia lost. <laughs> and yet, here they are talking about a long war. The divergence of the narratives is at play. The Ukraine absolutists want us to be all in on this war to the bitter end. And the China hawks want us out of this war so that we have the, uh, the, the spare brain capacity and spare bandwidth to commit to the Taiwan war. And we're starting to see that divergence realized in the mixed messaging that we're getting. This is the first time. We're going to start to see much more uh, China war drums being beaten, especially with the whole North Korea thing. That's going to be rolled into it. And we're going to see that. We're going to see that. So be on the lookout for that. Be on the lookout for the, the partisan war narrative coming back. But... As of now, they're, they're talking about a long war in Ukraine. How are you going to do that? You, you're not going to beat an armored column with a, a, a rifleman. You're not going to beat a jet fighter with a rifleman. And you're not going to break through the dug-in Russian defenses. Th this is not some small occupational army that the Russians have sent in. This is hundreds of thousands of men across a front line, a consolidated line. There is no room for the insurgency. There is no room for an insurgency. And so the partisan war idea that they're going to jump to immediately is going to be gone. But they're talking about a long war. So I assume that they either want to freeze the conflict, that, ins that stupid idea. They want to freeze the conflict. Or they think that they're just going to make it a permanent stalemate uh, by keeping the Russians from advancing uh, and switching to a purely defensive posture. Neither one of those are going to work. The, the, the freeze the conflict thing it would require a breakthrough in diplomacy that they are incapable of getting precisely because the Russians will never accept a frozen war in Ukraine. And even if they were willing to accept a frozen war in Ukraine, these people are not savvy enough to offer the Russians enough to incentivize them to take that deal. Because you, you see their proposals for peace in Ukraine. Ukraine gets everything it wants and the Russians get nothing. Well, even if the Russians were open to the idea of a frozen conflict in Ukraine, shoot, you're never going to hear them say yes to it with the way you're negotiating. These people don't know how to negotiate Jack Diddley or squat. I could get a better deal with the Russians than these people. It's crazy. <clears throat> but they're, So they're not going to get a frozen war. The partisan war isn't going to happen. So all that leaves left for a long war in Ukraine is more of what we're getting right now. A stalemate 
well, the per the perception of a stalemate anyway. But that's high intensity war. We don't have the stock. That's high intensity modern conflict. You're gonna need those planes, tanks, armored vehicles, those artillery pieces. You need the men, the fuel, and the ammunition to do that. We don't have the stockpiles of these pieces of equipment. Not anymore. We've already given them away. We're out of 155 millimeter artillery shells. In a war where 70% of the casualties come from artillery, we're out of 155 millimeters. That's why we're sending them cluster munitions now. And those aren't going to last forever for the same reason. We're not producing enough to resupply them at the rate that they're using them. And we don't have enough in stock to keep this going for years and years and years. And if Ukraine has no artillery, how are they going to fight this long war? We don't have the production to resupply them. That's why South Korea had to bail us out with that shipment of half a million shells in order for this counteroffensive to even get off the ground. Because if you remember back in March, Ukraine was down to a thousand shells a day. And, and there are some reports now saying that they're down to a thousand to three thousand shells again. And this time there's no bailing them out because no one else has the shells. No one who's going to give it to them anyway. We don't have the production to resupply them. So when Ukraine runs out this time, and the, the Europeans aren't going to be very helpful in that regard either, and they never have been. So once Ukraine runs out this time, that's it. It's game over. There is no long war to be had. And there's and then there's no way that I'm the only one who can see it. See, you see, I could call these people slow, and they are. <laughs> But let's be real. There is literally no possible way that I, a singular nigga, on a podcast in a country of 300 million people, there is no way I'm the only one who sees this. They have to know that. And yet they go along with these fantasy land ideas that they, and anyone else who takes just 30 seconds to think about it, know aren't going to work. And then people eat this shit up. Like, I'm, I'll take, as a side note, I'm just, I am so grateful for the sources of information that I've happened to stumble across throughout, over the course of this war that have been reliable and accurate or, and collectively have given me a very clearer picture of what's going on. Because without them, I'd, I'd be fucking lost. I'd just be absolutely lost. I'd be as lost <laughs> as the people that I see saying these blatantly untrue things about the war. People who will put, you know, little clown emojis whenever someone says that Russia's going to win or that Ukraine can't win. Those people, I'd be as lost. Actually, uh, I'll take that back. I don't know if I'd be as lost as them. But my golly, I, I'd be so far behind the curve that it wouldn't even be worth listening to me. So I'm, I'm just so thankful for my news sources like Jackson Hinkle, Jimmy Dore, the left lens with the Denny Haifong, 
the Duran, Alex and Alexander of the Duran, Mag fucking Nificent, Scott Ritter, Douglas McGregor. So happy for these sources of info. So happy because a, a lot of people, a lot of the other sort of independent news, because that's where you got to go if you even want to be partially caught up on this in a real way. A, a, a lot of the other independent news sources are just, they lag behind too far. Oh, and I, I should include Rogue News in this as well. They're great. But yeah, a lot of the other independent news, they they, they lag behind because they, they still latch on to the, the mainstream narratives, which we all know aren't true. And the narrative itself lags behind the truth because they try to shape and manufacture things it's to contort to their narratives. They can't say one thing and then the next day come out, yeah, we were wrong. They don't do that. They don't do that. And they certainly don't do it over a big issue like the Ukraine war. So I I just can't listen to a lot of the other sources that I get news from. Because they're on this issue, they're just too far behind the curve. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm really thankful for my source of information. And I hope that I've been a, a decently reliable source of information for you guys. But it's... There's no way that I and my sources, who I've just named, are the only ones who can see that these idiotic ideas can't work. How are you going to fight a long war with no ammunition? We, we won't even get into the, the, the hundreds of tanks and the thousand plus. I'm pretty sure it's over a thousand at this point the thousand plus armored vehicles that have been destroyed in just this counteroffensive alone. Just this counteroffensive over the, over the last three months. Not counting the, the hundreds of tanks and thousand plus armored vehicles that Ukraine had lost over the course of the war prior to this counteroffensive. The three million plus shells that we gave them that they ran out of prior to the counteroffensive. There's nothing left to give. We don't have the stockpiles to keep supplying them and we don't have the production to make up for what we've lost to give them more. So where's this, this long war going to come from? It, it's fake. It literally can't happen. It literally cannot happen. Even if we gave Ukraine literally, even if we gave Ukraine every single thing that we produced, all 14,000 shells, if we just lend leased them and set the bar to 100%, like it was a Hearts of Iron game, we hit, we hit the lend lease and go 100% of production instead of even bothering with the numbers. It's still not enough. 14,000 shells a month in U.S. artillery production. That's less than 500 shells a day and you're not going to go up very much with the european figures or their their grand total of 4000 18000 in 30 months uh 30 months or 30 days it's still worthless that's 6000 for every 10 days so that's 600 every day <laughs> 600 shells a day is what our production levels could afford to give them if we gave them everything that we produced, we and the Europeans. 600 shells a day. That's worse than what they have now. 
Meanwhile, the Russians are putting up 20 to 40,000 shells a day. There's no comparison. You're going to lose. In an artillery war, if you're putting up 600 shells a day and the Russians are dropping 20,000 on your head, you're going to lose. You're going to lose. There's no way around that. It's just a, a feature, not a bug. You're, you lose. It's just a matter of when. So this long war idea is unrealistic. It's unrealistic. It's based in fantasy. There is no reality. There's, there's no way of conscruing reality to fit that fantasy either. There's just no logical way you can come to that conclusion that this that we're going to have a long war in Ukraine. That there's even going to be a long war for you to fight that you can gear up for. It's it's nonsensical. And yet we these people are going along with nonsensical ideas. And the tragedy of it all is that Ukraine will be destroyed by this. And the secondary tragedy is that people who know that they're being lied to by these people, by these, these habitual liars, these pathological liars, who they know are pathological liars on any other issue that they won't trust the mainstream media for, they choose to trust them for the war. And a lot of people and a lot of authoritative sources, primarily in the independent news space, are going to go along with this. Like, I, I had to stop watching Kings and Generals. <laughs> Uh, specific their coverage of the war. Uh, I, I watch them anything else. I, I do like. Uh, I'm not dunking on other sources. Uh, it's just I I can't watch them for news. They're too far behind. They'll catch up eventually, but it's at that point. At that point, you're talking a month plus after the fact, and that's just not relevant. If I'm going to be bringing you guys news. If I'm going to be informing my damn self, I, it's just not worth it. It's just not worth it. Now, granted, I do have my lovely playlist where I, I assemble all these terrible takes on the Ukraine war that I will indulge in when the war is over. But yeah, a long war in Ukraine, <laughs> whatever that's supposed to mean. <laughs> There's no long war in Ukraine. We don't have the production. We don't have the stockpiles. And Ukraine doesn't have the men anymore. They're the, we talked about how they're openly discussing the final waves of mobilization, one of which being every man and woman, every able-bodied man and woman in the country are going to be sent to the front line. When that's the level of conscription you've moved up to, there is no long war for you to fight. So not just from our end of this equation, but from the Ukrainian end, there is not even a prospect of a long war. Certainly not with the rates of loss that they're suffering. I mean, 80,000 plus in Bakhmut, 60,000 plus lo losses in just this offensive alone, 293,000 obituaries published, and that was what, a month ago now? So they're probably at 300,000 plus obituaries published. Half of their casualties are deaths. So obituaries, which we know for a fact are confirmed kills. So if you're at 300,000 obituaries, you're at 600,000 casualties. And you just lost another 60,000 men. 
My goodness. My good. There is no long war. So what are these people talking about? I don't know. M maybe you can figure it out. Maybe, but I can't. <laughs> I. I. Maybe you know what? Maybe this is just a a a shaping operation. To get us to steadily, slowly accept the idea that Ukraine's not gonna get the great get. They're not gonna get the great breakthrough. The big breakthrough. And then that's going to shift into, oh, it turns out Russia isn't actually collapsing. And then it's going to become, oh, the Russian, how did we get the Russian military wrong? Here's why Russia's military is stronger than experts believed at first. And then it's going to be, oops, Ukraine lost the war. Because <laughs> I honestly don't believe these people are that dumb to believe this. Maybe they are. And maybe even at this point, I'm still giving them too much credit. But, you know. When it comes to malice and uh, don't attribute to, don't attribute to malice what can be accomplished with incompetence. Well, I think they're both incompetent and malicious. Oh, but I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. There's no long war, but I guess that won't stop them from dreaming of a one. I guess that won't stop them. This segment was taken from my podcast, This Week in Geopolitics. I have new episodes every Monday, so if you like what you heard consider giving me a follow. Thanks for listening, and hopefully I'll see you next time. Servus.